Hello, everyone, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host today, Catherine McKay, and I'm joined by Jessica Pace. Hi, Jess. Hi, everyone. How are you going? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Good. So Jess is joined today to discuss her paper, Formulating an Ethics of Pharmaceutical Disinvestment, which is co-authored with um, Tracy Leah Laba, Marie Paul Nisingizwe, and Wendy Lipworth. And this paper is forthcoming in the Journal of Bioethical Inquiry. Is that right? Yes. Um, I think it's been published online, but it, it, the journal officially comes out as soon as possible. Fantastic. Yeah. So I wonder if you can just give a bit of a, an overview of what your paper is about, Jess. Sure. So I think the context for this paper is that there's a few challenges facing healthcare systems. So firstly, there's an increasing demand for therapies earlier in their pipeline. So that might mean that um, while they seem promising, there's less evidence of efficacy and safety. Um, and these new drugs are also quite expensive. So kind of a compromise position is that we could say, yes, we will let these therapies on the market, um, but that's only on the condition that we collect further information about them when they come on the market and we always have the option or so the argument goes, we have the option to remove them um, if they turn out to be less safe or effective than we first thought. Mm -hmm. And then so looking into these new pathways to get medicines onto the market, um, my colleagues and myself realised that the big issue is really can you actually take these medicines, can you ethically take these medicines off the market if they turn out to be um, less safe or effective or cost-effective than we thought? Mm -hmm. um, and then so we wanted to explore the ethical and political issues that would be raised in an attempt to take these medicines off the market and see if it really is as simple as has been made out. Um, and then in, in this paper, we explore those ethical issues that we think are relevant. So the motivations for writing the paper came from recognizing that there was a trend or a desire from governments or from, I guess, industry to disinvest in these medicines? Um, I think it's a bit of everyone. So there's a desire for for patients and industry to get medicines on the market more quickly. Um, and then I guess the, the trend or the compromise position is that, okay, we'll do that, but then we will also... Um, will also have that mechanism available to take them off the market if they turn out to not be as good as we thought. So I thought that the paper was really interesting. I really liked how you went through the different principles that were relevant, and it was really interesting to read how many of the principles that you identified actually spoke in favor of disinvestment or against disinvestment. So I guess I just wondered if you could say something about uh, the approach that you took Maybe why you thought that these principles were the principles that were most relevant and kind of what your main argument was about them. Um, so the approach we took to identifying these, it was a lot of it was a sitting down and thinking and talking kind of paper. So we, my colleagues were all um, working in pharmaceutical ethics and um, pharmaceutical regulation. Um, and we kind of were thinking, okay, what are some examples of disinvestment and then what kind of principles do they raise and what and what are most relevant to disinvestment decisions. Um, we also sort of supplemented it with a literature review. Um, but one of the challenges there was when we looked for literature specifically on ethics of disinvestment, there wasn't a lot out there. Mm. So then we had to think of, okay, there are other situations in healthcare where we take things away from people and those principles would also be relevant here. Um, so things like closing down a clinical trial, withdrawing care at the end of life, those sorts of things raise principles that we thought could be relevant to disinvestment as well. Do you think of it as 
being more of a kind of exploratory paper? Or do you think of it as being a paper that's really sort of making a case, staking a claim? I think it's it's a little bit of both. So the first part of the paper was exploratory. Mm. Um, so it was just uh, thinking about these principles and identifying ethical principles that would be relevant to guide disinvestment decisions. Because again, we couldn't find a lot of guidance out there. But then we also realised when we looked at the real-life disinvestment decisions that even if you have a really strong ethical basis for disinvesting from something, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy or it doesn't mean it's going to be well accepted. Mm -hmm. Um, So then in the later part of the paper, we explore sort of the psychological and political biases that could undermine disinvestment. And I think the main take-home that we want people to get from this is that even if disinvestment seems to be the most moral, the most acceptable decision, it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So any disinvestment decisions need to be um, both based on these moral principles but also communicated well to the public and Mm -hmm. uh, you shouldn't make the assumption that it will be an easier, well-accepted decision um, and kind of prepare if you are going to do a a disinvestment initiative, be in it for the long haul, I guess. Mm. Yeah, in the paper you say that some of the biases are ones that have been found by behavioral economics or behavioral psychology including like status quo bias and loss aversion and endowment effect. So basically it seems like one of the things that you're saying in the paper is that even when there might be really good clinical reasons to take a drug off the market, like it doesn't work, for example, Uh there are going to be people who are really strongly in favor of keeping it and it will be it will be related to some kind of complex psychological process perhaps or psychological reaction or emotional reaction that people have perhaps to that drug. I think so. It's that psychological reaction you have to protecting something that you already have. Yeah. Um, Because another thing we found that when we looked at the ethical principles was these actually aren't that different to arguments for getting medicines on the market. Mm. And then a lot of the time, if you were, if you look at the debates about getting medicines on the market, they're nowhere near as strong or as emotionally charged as things about taking medicines off the market. So that makes us think, well, there must be something else going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was when we looked at those um, psychological biases that you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And we think that plays a big part mm-hmm. in these decisions. Now, this might be quite controversial, and this is not my area, (laughs) but I was wondering while I was reading your paper, if in some of the examples that you give about people, like um, people who have had a specific drug related to an illness or a disease that they're managing, that it turns out doesn't really do anything or it doesn't work the way it's supposed to, but they've attributed their survival of their disease perhaps to that drug Mm -hmm. do you think that that happens like people kind of attach their success in managing a disease or surviving a disease to something that actually probably wasn't really related but is a tangible sign of their recovery I think so that came up in the um Vavasis remember the Avastin debates that we talk about in the paper Uh Um, so that one it was conditionally approved for the treatment of a certain type of breast cancer so HER2 positive breast cancer in the United States and then after the, that further data was collected, it was shown, well, it doesn't actually really work for this indication, and it actually comes with really quite serious side effects. So the FDA made the decision to withdraw that indication from the drug, and it was just what you were saying. Even though the, there was actually quite strong evidence to show that it 
doesn't really work for this indication, just patient groups and industry, um, were coming out with statements like the FDA were killing 17,000 women with one vote by taking this drug away. Um, and you had a number of survivors coming out saying the only reason I'm here is because of this drug, despite the quite good evidence that that's probably not the case. Hmm. So did you face any specific challenges when you were collecting the data for this research or when you were writing the paper? Like this sounds like it's quite a an emotionally charged area to try to be doing research in. I think the first big challenge that we had was we had initially planned it as a straight literature review paper, mm. um, but there was just not a lot of literature out right. there or not a lot that we could find. And then I think another challenge we had was we got stuck in kind of an evidence-based medicine, almost a systematic review style trying to do it, um, and that that clearly didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> we even had a flow diagram at one point of, of our search strategy, which was quite interesting. Um, but as, as I'm sure you know, it's not really appropriate for a bioethics kind of review paper. <laughs> um, and then once we got away from that and, and kind of accepted it's it's okay for us to kind of sit down and think these issues through and then supplement that with the literature, then it became a lot easier to write the paper. In terms of the of the emotions in the area, um, for me that wasn't a big challenge, but I think that's because I've been looking at this area for a little while through my um, PhD studies. Mm-hmm. So those, I guess those kind, and I also work as a pharmacist as well. So we often see these requests from, from patients who have very few treatment options mm-hmm. available. And then these sorts of decisions is, unfortunately, um, saying no is something that we become accustomed to a bit, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that aspect wasn't really, wasn't the main challenge for us. It was kind of the, um, writing the paper, it was kind of the getting the methodology right and and then identifying those principles, I guess. Mm-hmm. That's actually really interesting to hear. So I guess you've mentioned that the main kind of takeaway message that you want people to have from reading your paper is that even if you make a good or kind of well-founded decision Mm -hmm. to disinvest, it's not going to be broadly accepted or it's not going to be, I think you said it's not going to be easy. And I think by that you maybe mean like it's still going to meet with resistance from people. I think so. I think the the few examples that we have of things that have been, where disinvestment has occurred, they've been quite controversial and they've created a lot of um, discussion and debate and they've been quite drawn out processes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they didn't, I think the final disinvestment didn't really look like what had been planned at the start of the initiative. Right. So you could look at something like um, the medication um, Sinicalcid or Sensapar, which was taken off the PDS for cost-effectiveness reasons a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And that one, it was um, it was approved for subsidy under the PBS in Australia um, for the treatment of secondary hyperparathyroidism in patients with chronic kidney disease. Um, but this was only on the condition that its cost-effectiveness would be reassessed after results from a clinical trial became available. So the trial showed that it offered um, no benefit in kind of long-term outcomes, and the PBS wanted a price cut to make the medicine viable to keep subsidising. Mm-hmm. Um, so the company said... They, that price cut wasn't acceptable to the company, so it was taken off the PBS. But there were a subset of patients who that was their only treatment option available. So in the end, it's still on the market in a limited capacity through a company compassionate access scheme. Okay. Um, so I think from what I understand, I don't think the patients pay a lot through that company access scheme. So 
I guess the company, like, they won't accept it, they weren't prepared to accept the PBAC's price cut, but they still are subsidising it in a way for those patients who who just don't have any other options available. Yeah, interesting. And for those patients, it does work? So this one was interesting because it did, it works on certain things, so it doesn't have any impact on long-term outcomes, so kind of like cardiovascular disease, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can be used for the treatment of, say, um, high calcium levels or um, in patients who can't have um, a parathyroidectomy. So if they're unsuitable for surgery or they're waiting for surgery, then this drug can keep their calcium levels at an acceptable level until they can have that surgery. Um, so it's useful in certain in those kind of defined clinical situations. It's just that the company, I guess, weren't prepared to take the price cut to reflect that it's it's useful in this way, but it's not useful in those long-term outcomes. Fascinating. It's a really yeah. interesting paper. Thanks so much for sharing it with us, Jess. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Oh, this was great. Anyone who's interested can find Jess's paper linked in the episode notes uh, below this episode. And thanks very much for being here with me today, Jess. You're very welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening if you've gotten to this this far into the podcast. <laughs> if you'd like to hear more of our She Research podcast, you can find us on Anchor or on Spotify or wherever else you find your podcasts of quality. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Thanks, everyone.